here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if we end up here. This is the drop zone. Good evening, folks. This is Sean Zock, your captain, speaking with a hoarse voice because did a lot of yelling, <laughs> a lot of yelling this weekend. Joined, as always, by Dylan DeChair, uh, who is on the road driving through Oklahoma right now. Dylan, how are you feeling? I feel great, Sean. I feel energized. I want our listeners to know I am driving safely, obeying the rules of the road. I'm in a white Ford Mustang. And uh, the guy at the Tulsa Airport Rental Center said uh, there were a lot of one-way rentals out of Tulsa tonight, which I don't think will be a big <laughs> surprise to anyone. Uh, but, you know, sad to see the city of Tulsa in the rear view. Well, Dylan, one thing I saw on Sunday was you in the background of Mito Pereira wearing Radmore gear. Ambush marketing at its finest there, Sean. Um, I was not, what, uh, what were you wearing? I wasn't wearing my drop zone number today actually, but I was wearing this fresh, uh, kind of light blue hoodie and got a lot of compliments actually walking inside the ropes this week. Sean, the good people can get this hoodie and a bunch of other good Radmore gear at radmoregolf.com. That's R A D M O R golf.com. And you can use code drop zone for 25% off. So a lot of good news can be found at radmoregolf.com, our presenting sponsor. There is a lot of drop zone discussion happening this weekend in Madison, Wisconsin. I was at a wedding for one of our faithful listeners, and uh, there's just a lot of people who are like, hey, man, I really like the drop zone. It's great <laughs> to hear. Great to hear the people. There's probably more people talking about our podcast at the Madison wedding than there were people talking about it at your wedding back in the fall. So I think that means we're growing. We do well in Wisconsin. No doubt about that. <laughs> Let's talk about JT. Uh, Justin Thomas, two career majors. He chases down all these young guns today. Yeah. The PGA championship won, of course, by the son of a PGA professional, the grandson of a PGA professional. Um, this felt... This was a weird Sunday, man, from where I sit. like It was a crazy Sunday. It, it felt like at any given point, any one of five dudes could really win it, but like you didn't really trust any of them. Yeah. I didn't trust Mito Pereira. I didn't trust him. You know, I, I really thought that he was going to die on the vine at some point, and I don't like saying that. He's a very good golfer, but it just felt like fateful for him. Like it was just slowly but surely leaking out. Cameron Young slowly but surely leaking. Like at one point, like middle of the afternoon, like three o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. Like Zalatoris was at eight under. Pereira was at eight or nine under. And it's like, damn, those guys, if you would have told them, hey, you play even golf, you're gonna win by three strokes <laughs> from here on in, they would have taken it and ran to the house because it, it that's what this golf course i guess did to you like it just kind of beats you up unless you're really on eventually it's going to it's going to get you uh and i guess the only person it didn't really get was justin thomas yeah i mean it was two things at once in my mind sean justin thomas was an incredibly unlikely winner but also like such an incredibly fitting winner um 
at no point on Sunday until really the end did it feel like JT had like a, a really legitimate shot at winning. It was crazy. Like Mito Pereira was several shots ahead and and you know JT hit a cold shank at number six and made bogey and at that point was still seven or maybe even eight shots back. Um but he stuck to his game plan, which he said was not looking at leaderboards, trying to hit one good shot at a time, and just started racking up the birdies and just played some really impressive golf while everyone else was crumbling down the stretch. And and sure enough, ended up being the last man standing. Tell the truth. Did you think Mito Pereira was going to win today? I thought he was more likely to win than anybody else. If it was a coin flip i i would say i did not expect him to win um yeah but you know i I still thought certainly he had a a better chance than any other individual just because he had a three-shot lead and he'd been like really unflappable well what did it look like when he started to become flappable (laughs) because i know you know that when i talked about we're talking about radmore you were right behind him so you were following him for a lot of it today and you can't really tell this story of the championship without discussing him crumbling. Eventually. Yeah. Even though, even though it happened on the hardest hole in the golf course, you know, the kind of hole that will beat you up, even though he didn't hit like that bad of a tee shot, he hit a bad enough tee shot. And it just felt like the summation of just little things crumbling all day long. You know what? It, it, frankly, it kind of felt like Louis or uh, Francesco Molinari at the masters in 2019, mm. where, this guy is making par savers all afternoon long. You know, these 12, 15 foot par savers, nine foot par savers that it was really keeping him atop the leaderboard. You almost would have rather had him like lose one of those par savers early on to drop off the top yeah. of the of the leaderboard. Cause he was never anywhere but the top until his last hole. Like he led the tournament for basically 34 of the last yeah. 36 holes or something like that. And um yeah. So what did that look like? It, I mean, it was a real emotional seesaw because he had a couple different moments where it felt like he could slam the door. Um, so on 15, where Matt Fitzpatrick chipped in, Mito had hit a, a terrific yeah. drive and a nice approach shot. He had a really good look at birdie and it felt like, all right, if he rolls this thing in, he's probably going to seal the deal. Just missed that. Then on the next hole, you know, he gets a hits a, a kind of mediocre chip uh, up ahead. JT hits it to 10 feet on number 18 and and the crowd is going wild. You can hear all of that right as Mito is like about to step up to his putt and then he drains it. So it's like, well, wait a minute. This guy is, is still kind of holding steady. He hits a great tee shot on 17, leaves himself a nice chip. And if his putt on 17 goes in, I feel pretty confident that he wins the golf tournament. So it felt like there were a couple different inflection points there. He has a birdie putt that stops. I don't know what it was, a a roll short of going in for birdie, giving him a two shot lead instead of a one shot lead. If he hits his driver into the Creek, does that mean he should not have hit his driver? No. I mean, the 18th hole is tricky and, uh, kind of, kind of a potential heartbreaker. I think he made a bad swing. I know he made a bad swing. Um, one of the cool things, Sean, that I'm excited for people to read is an article that will be out tomorrow on golf.com because I've actually been following Mito around all week. 
this was just a, a random week essentially where I had worked out. Yeah, good week. To, gonna, good week to hang out with Mito. I'd worked out at the beginning of the week that I was going to spend time with Mito every day and kind of check in and see what it was like for you know him as a talented PGA Tour rookie uh, to be playing in one of his first major championships. So sure enough, <laughs> I got to spend a bunch of time with him and that included uh, walking into the locker room with him after this all went down. And uh, I'll save some of that for for this story, which will come out tomorrow. But I will say that, yeah, he, he made it pretty clear that his shot on 18, his driver was not hit with uh, integrity. It came out too far right. And then there's this kicker slope that, you know, you saw a few different people hit this week and uh, he caught the big time right kick and ended up in the bottom of that creek. That was the weirdest moment. And I don't know where you were standing when it happened. I was on the but- left side of the fairway and we couldn't we couldn't tell if it had gone in. The the volunteer, the marshal there signaled safe, which is like the classic it's this classic confusing golf signal because you know it's like it's like the referee signaling incomplete catch, but you know, normally in golf that means safe, which means a good thing. So uh we we were we were just really unsure if the ball had hung up in the rough uh or what it meant but then we saw him starting to drop and it was just like oh no i cannot believe this is happening yeah it was a really funny part of the broadcast too because it his drive did not pick up on the shot tracer and mm-hmm. so you see him kind of do that really really try hard <laughs> to turn the ball from right to yeah. left swing and then he kind of storms off the tee box, like peers at it. You can see Fitzpatrick is like really looking and trying to watch the ball down. And you, there's no camera on the ground up in the fairway that like showed you where the ball was. And it's a hard thing for cameras to do, especially if they're on the other side of the fairway. And so we didn't know where it was. And then Jim Nance didn't know where it was. And we're like, he, he kind of shows like, I, I don't know where it is. Where is it? And then suddenly camera cut to camera and it's just staring at the golf ball submerged in the water in the middle of the creek and it's like is that his ball is that someone else's random ball there's no waves here there's no splash we have no clue um but yeah lo and behold that was just like people are comparing it to jean vandeveld and what he did at carnoustie i don't know if i see it the same exact way um yeah mainly mainly because like yeah, he, he made a, not a great swing, but like that ball could have got caught up in the rough. It could have ended in the fairway. Like it could have ended in so many mm-hmm. different spots. It was unlucky to find the bottom of the creek. And then like Vandeveld, like Vandeveld made mistake after mistake. It kind of felt right. like Mito at that point was a bit done in and he, he couldn't quite recover as much. I mean, Vandeveld, like he made triple. So, um, yeah. Well, Mito and he had what? He had a three shot lead too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Mito, I mean, Mito had a, he had a one shot lead. He was playing a really difficult golf hole. I was sort of expecting just based off how things were going that, you know, maybe he would make a more traditional bogey, like drive it in the rough, miss the green, you know, not get up and down. That felt like a real possibility because 18 is a brute. Um, But man, then to watch that play out in front of this giant gallery, uh, the, the fans were just everywhere. I mean, they were surrounding the hole. There were a couple people yelling 
you know, a couple mean people actually yelling stuff about, oh, if you make if you make bogey here, you'll be in a play. You know, people like rooting for Justin Thomas, but then yeah. rooting against Mito Pereira. Um, so it was just a really tough. Wow, there's a karaoke carpool going on next to me. Um. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're get, the one with the mic to in the, your hand. Yeah, this is true. Gets up to the green. I went and found Joaquin Neiman, who was uh, watching the action. He was next to Sebastian Munoz, and then Abraham Answer came in. So a few of Mito's best buddies on tour. And uh, Waco was just, I mean, he was just so nervous. He was heartbroken for his friend. Um, yeah, Mito's wife was there, too. It, it was just surreal to kind of have him lead for so long and then have this really jarring moment just undo all of that all at once yeah well and as you said it it really did feel like people really wanted justin thomas to win which i don't really ever feel good about but that's how it played out so uh i would like to point out dylan that on this very podcast a week ago i did say no one has gotten less out of what i thought to be a really good year of golf than Justin Thomas. Like it, it it felt like this guy was putting together kind of what John Rahm started to put together a year ago. And he was raising his floor and wasn't missing cuts, wasn't finishing tied for 50th. It was, if you give this guy four rounds of golf, he's going to move his way up the leaderboard. And he had not won yet this year, but he had just kind of forever just moved up and up and up. And you know, this was the actual, the ultimate crowning of, of that, I guess, that fact that we're, we're watching JT do right now. is like his floor is really good. And when you play in major championships, your floor really, really matters. Like if your worst round is 74, like his was, and your best rounds are 67, you're going to make cuts in majors. If your worst floor is 76, 78, or whatever, like, Brooks Kepka and Cantley and and Scheffler showed off with this week. Yeah, like that's not going to do as well across the board in major championships. So, it was yeah. it was good for speed or excuse me, it's good for Thomas to like get it done, kind of get off the like I don't know if it's a slump when it reaches four and a half to 5 years. Would you call that a major championship slump? I don't know if it's a slump if you only had one beforehand because that's not it's not really like you had a hitting streak and then you got into a slump. But but I will say, Sean, you sound a lot like a guy named Bones who gave JT a similar pep talk Saturday night. Um, it's funny. We were kind of there for this because they were the last guys on the range and Mito was going down there and I was following them around. Anyway, Bones gave JT a little tough love, basically a little pick me up to say, look, you, you have to stop being so hard on yourself. You've been frustrated all week. You know, every time you tee it up, you're basically getting in contention and here you are still in major championship contention. And, uh, JT said he left the course feeling remarkably good, remarkably positive considering he had just shot four over and, you know, most people thought had just shot himself out of the tournament. Um, so yeah, I think he was recognizing the same things that you were and we, yeah, we did say in our preview show, JT seemed like he had all the, all the fixings to win this tournament. But I think, you know, I don't want to point out that maybe you picked 
John Rom to to win, but you did pick Will Zalatoris to finish second, Sean. So actually, Thank major you. props there. Yeah, absolutely nailed that one. Uh, JT finishes seventeenth, strokes gained off the tee, thirty eighth, strokes gained approached in the green. If you would have told me that he won this week and he wasn't a top twenty ball striker in the field, I would have been surprised at that. But finishes. He lost strokes to the field on Sunday. Yeah, with his uh, with his irons, which I think is largely due to that shank at number six. But still, the fact that he got it done with his putter, which I think is the number you're about to get to, is definitely a shocker. Yeah, finishes second this week in strokes gained putting, 13th in strokes gained around the green. Uh, you know, you win a tournament, you win a tournament like this. None of these things can ever really be that bad, but... We definitely did say that a guy who hits it long, a guy who hits it pretty straight, who's a good ball striker, uh, and who's going to chip it well is going to be the kind of person who contends. So that is what JT did. Uh, one of my favorite like ongoing behind-the-scenes things is this half-real, half-fake competition between Spieth and JT because they're really, really good friends. We know that. They also happen to like arrive on the PGA PGA Tour at the exact same time. And they also happen to be amassing very, very similar resumes. <laughs> like now JT, like we said, maybe it's not a slump, but he got it done four and a half years after, but almost five years after his first win. Suddenly his resume is almost as good as Spieth's. And we always knew it was going to take time. When Spieth comes out and wins five times in 2015, and two of those are majors. We naturally are like, well, this is the this is the the guy for their generation. Jordan Spieth will be the best golfer of his generation, and <laughs> he he might not even be the best golfer in his friend group. Is is the kind of thing I've been like <laughs> sneakily holding on to? Is that yeah? I think I think the long game, both of them being healthy, I think it might end up favoring Thomas. And it, it's the, the recency bias thing that you can always bring up when one of them wins. But like suddenly JT's got 15 tour wins, two majors, and yeah, we'll probably be the favorite to win at Brookline. So uh, I, don't, I don't really know if I'm even like making a point other than like this like speed versus JT thing is something that I've always had in the back of my mind. I don't know if anyone else thinks about it though. It was definitely interesting to see Smiley Kaufman uh, at the PGA Championship in a media capacity, Sean. So I'll start yeah. there. I would say both of them have outstripped Smiley in terms of pro golf accomplishments. Um, shout out to Smiley, who, like myself, is a professional golfer who has now entered the talking into a microphone ranks. Um, but yeah, with as far as Spieth versus JT goes, it's definitely easy to be a prisoner of the moment. I mean, Spieth came into this tournament coming off a first and a second, but he's hitting the ball well until he's not. And watching him on the range is watching him on the range. You probably never feel great about it because of just how, uh, how in the process he gets. And it was, it was disappointing to watch him really not contend at all this week. So yeah, we're probably prisoners of the moment, but are we though? Like, answer the question, who has more career majors, Spieth or Thomas, at the end of the day? Oh, wow. Jeez, right now it feels like JT. 
Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't take myself out of this moment. Like he was the best golfer in the field this week without question. Like no, there's no doubt in my mind that he played the best golf. He had the toughest conditions on Thursday and Friday. He showed off a golf game that I would say no one else in the field really has. And then on Saturday he played poorly, but on Sunday he bounced back. He didn't even start that well on Sunday, but he finished hot. I mean, he got to the playoff. He made two birdies in the first two holes. Like there was no better golfer in the field than Justin Thomas. I feel very, very satisfied that he's the winner. Yeah. He's got firepower, man. Like I say that. And sometimes I don't, I don't, it doesn't quite like equate for people. Like what does firepower mean? Does it mean that you can rattle off a bunch of birdies? It really just more so to me means that like, yeah, you can make a bunch of birdies, but you also you just hit the clutch shots. Like it, there was no doubt in my mind that if you gave him two cracks at seventeen, that short par four that you could he could hit a three wood onto a three wood with a cut. Like there was no doubt in my mind that he was eventually going to play that hole better than the younger player Zalatoris. Um, even though Zalatoris made birdie uh, the first time he played it, I guess in regulation today, it just felt like. It never really felt like JT wasn't going to win. Once he got into that playoff, I don't know, man. Even though Zalatoris like, got closer in two shots on 13, I I don't think I ever really considered him hoisting up the Wanamaker. Kind of felt like it was JT's to lose. It's funny how it all works out, Sean, because I think everyone was entering Sunday sort of prepared for uh, kind of an obscure major winner. Like Mito Pereira is the 100th ranked golfer in the world. This is only his, you know, he's only played in a couple major championships. Um, and he was up by three shots. Like the, the, the best players in the world played so poorly Saturday that it felt like none of them were in contention going to Sunday. Um, so I felt like it was a tournament without an identity, right? It was, it was Phil Mickelson's absence was the big story coming into the week. Tiger Woods's absence was the story of Saturday night. Like it was really more about the stuff that the guys that weren't contending rather than the guys that were. But then somehow we ended up with this incredible symbolic thing of JT not only being one of the best golfers in the world, playing the best golf this week, but he's also, you know, Tiger Woods's best friend on tour and he's got Phil Mickelson's caddy. So it was like this this really cool uh I don't know, union or confluence of all these different storylines in one surprising, miraculous win for JT. What should we say about Rory? We should say, well, from the ground, I will say that Rory did not talk to the media either Saturday or Sunday, which is a pretty rare thing. And I think probably speaks to his level of just frustration and, uh, I would say he was frustrating to watch as someone that really likes to to see him succeed. And I was then thinking, okay, if it's frustrating to watch, imagine how frustrating it must be to experience. Um, I don't know. I mean, what what did you expect from Rory on Sunday and how did that compare to what happened? I had no expectations for him. Uh, I totally agreed with, I guess, Kevin Van Valkenburg. What he wrote is that like, at some point you let you let he's been letting go of major championships be it on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday and he did it on Saturday this week and I think whether or not he backdoors his way into the top 10 he always plays himself 
far enough out of it that he's actually never quite in it. Like at Augusta this year. Yeah, you know, he shot 64 on Sunday and finishes second, I believe solo second. And he will always have that second place finish, but he was never in it. <laughs> it, it required a four putt from Scotty Scheffler so that Rory could get within three. And I think that's what's been hardest for me to believe in Rory is that there's actually never been contention. Like when he contended at Torrey Pines last year, that felt like the first time he actually contended in a major in a long time. Like he's got top tens at uh, Carnoustie, top 10 at Chambers Bay. Those aren't contention. Just because you finish in the top 10 doesn't mean that you were having your shots even shown on the weekend. Like, so it felt like he played his way too far out of it. Of course, Gosh, he did run out to being four under through five today. Made you think about it. He got within five of the lead. I think he got within three of second place. But the, you know, it's like, did we did we look at any of the shots that he hit on the back nine today? Not really. So I don't know. I feel bad for the guy because, like you said, it is surprising. He's not doing media suddenly. Like he feels like like he needs to make some other sort of change to get his mind right and. Um, it's just been eight long years of these little tiny made minor changes and tweaks. And what am I doing to do it right? And yeah, at some point you just gotta, you just gotta be yourself and and do your thing. Yeah. I mean that that's become his brand. Unfortunately is, you know, if he's out of contention, he'll play his way into contention, but then once he's in contention, he plays his way out. So what's crazy is, you know, I was standing with, with, uh, you know, Mito and the leaders at, on the range, they hadn't teed off yet. And Rory was three under, and then he hit it on the fifth green and two. And there were starting to be some roars bouncing around. And I was like, wait a minute, he's four under. Like if he posts, say, six or seven is what we were thinking at the time, that's really going to make people think, you know, if he could just get to six or seven. Turns out, he just needed to get to five. He just needed to play the rest <laughs> of his round at one under par. Um, and I think that that's part of the frustration that he was showing at the end. He was just, you know, he, he wants this really bad. He knows probably exactly what people are going to say about it. Um, and it's still a lot better that he finished eighth than, you know, missing the cut. Like he was still of the golfers that are, ranked in the top 10 in the world he was still finished the second best of anyone besides justin thomas like i think we can give him credit for playing well while also be you know just bummed out that he just can't get across the finish line yeah and he probably doesn't feel like he's being discussed in that way so i don't know here's an idea maybe we don't give him a press conference before the event starts like rory (laughs) always does pressers and uh, because he's good at press conferences, his quotes always kind of emanate throughout the week. Like you'll always get some articles based off of what Rory said. And, you know, Brooks Kepka has done really well when he has not gotten a pre-round or pre-tournament press conference. And he just kind of flies under the radar. We only talk about him maybe uh, in terms of his odds. We talk about him on Golf Channel, but we don't base everything around Rory. Um, that's some, that's some yeah. kind of like I mean, half cooked idea. It's just whack-a-mole with him, right? It's like, it seemed like coming into this week, the only thing he had to do well was just start well. It's like, if he can just play well in the first round, 
based on his recent major championship experience, he's going to win. Like it felt on Thursday, like, wow. All right. He's gotten the monkey off his back. He shot five under, uh, he's leading the tournament. Now that's the hardest thing. Now he just has to get into cruise mode because he's been the best weekend major championship golfer probably in the world. I mean, he was low man at the masters on the weekend by like six shots, but it's not so simple. All right. Zalatoris, I guess we got to pay our respects there. The guy finished second in the playoff. Um, you know, again, I don't want to say we told you so, but we kind of did tell you that it would, he would make a lot of sense here. Hits the ball long, hits it really straight. Great ball striker, not a great putter, but this really felt like a course you didn't have to putt. You didn't have to be a great putter to excel at. And so, um, what's interesting, he's, he's kind of piling up this like major championship bona fides. Uh, it's his fifth top 10 in majors, which is remarkable for a pretty young dude. Um, he said afterward, like today was a bit affirming. Um, he said he, he knows he's going to win one eventually. I, I think we can maybe expect him to win a major in his career, but he still hasn't won like period. He hasn't won on the PGA yeah. tour at all. Um, this felt like a positive step. It's just hard to say like how big of a positive step it is. Cause he still missed like some really short putts when you find yourself in a playoff You've got no choice but to think about those three and four footers you missed. Yeah. I mean, apart from Thomas, Zalatoris was probably going to be the most satisfying winner on the leaderboard in terms of guys whose whose careers have gotten them to this point, right? Like he has been a major championship contender, performer, overachiever. Um, so it, it would have made a lot of sense for him to end up the PGA championship winner. Man, hit the the par putt that he made on 18 and the fist pump that he unleashed after that, that was one of the most memorable moments for me of the entire week um, because, well, clearly it means a lot to him to make a, an important short putt. Um, and also because I think that, that meant something to him that he could show up in this big moment and uh, and get it done. So he played really well. Uh, there's a few shots and a few putts that, man, he would really, really, really like to have back. I think he's right that he'll win one. Um, but I also think, you know, you got to do it at some point, right? All right, Dylan, before we move forward and talk about your favorite player, Tiger Woods, let's talk about global golf real quickly. Global golf has one letter on its mind right now. That letter is you. Global golf's various services are you try you trade in, you select. They're all about getting people like you into the right golf clubs. You try is about you trying brand new gear for two weeks. Dylan, you brought some new gear for me to try down to Tulsa earlier in the week. I can't wait to try it. And if I was working and using global golf, I'd be able to send it back if I didn't like it. I don't think if I don't like it, I'm not going to be able to send it back to you. So you trade in allows you to trade in your previously owned gear for credit towards the newest and best. And uh, you select is all about personalized recommendations from golf professionals to help you select the best gear for your game. You try, you trade in and you select. It is all about you, the golfer at global golf. Check it out at globalgolf.com. All right, Dylan. Let's talk about, before we talk to Tiger, talk to Tiger, talk about Tiger, let's talk Southern Hills. Um, I was enamored with the property. 
Uh, I got to see it for a couple of days before having to to scatter off. Uh, do you feel like it held up over the weekend? Do you feel like everything that everyone loved it for? Um, do you feel like that kind of was validated by what you saw when when the actual scores counted? Oh yeah, definitely. It's funny. I, I'm definitely curious. People that have not been there and just watched it on TV, if it also similarly held up, like because it's not spectacularly breathtaking just in terms of landscape i was curious if people were taken by it from home but i thought it was really cool i thought there were a lot of memorable golf holes on it um i didn't think there were really any weaknesses i know there was some criticism that the par threes were just kind of too brutal um but even those i felt like there were some really interesting strategy like the 11th hole yielded some big time doubles and triples um but also it was just kind of a short, tricky par three where you just have to hit the right side of the green. Um, I Yeah, I thought Southern Hills was really good. What about you? Yeah, yeah, it definitely struck me as a major championship-worthy course. I don't know if guys would love to go back to Oklahoma super frequently, but I think like once a decade would make a lot of sense with PGA Championship. Um, you know, I think the PGA of America wants to go to Olympic Club. They... They probably want to go down to Atlanta Athletic Club. They want to go uh, – where are the other PGA Championship courts? They're going to do a bunch of events at their upcoming course in Frisco. They're they're going to bounce around to some less heralded clubs, courses, and I feel like this one makes a lot of sense for it. It's in the middle of the country. We've talked about how the USGA is pretty much taking over the coasts. Uh, I don't know why Oklahoma shouldn't have – a PGH, I mean, because like once a decade is is really not often at all. The fans turned out. Um, I think they were a little uncertain of who to root for for a little while, but um, there were a lot of them. And it, there actually are a little, it's a little bit of an awkward spectator course. Sometimes you're set back pretty far from the action. Um, Rory was talking about that when he said, you know, playing with Tiger wasn't actually as intimidating this year because fans are a little bit more removed from the action. Um, but definitely by the time fans were allowed to move on to the 10th tee box, get a little bit closer to that 18th green, there was a pretty cool amphitheater. And yeah, I mean, the, the fans were just out to play, especially on Sunday. I, feel, I just felt like there was a lot of fives made. Like, I don't feel like there were so many double bogeys at this course as much as this like guys jumping on yep. the bogey train and riding it for the back nine. Like even me One up- important double bogey, Sean. One very important one. Yeah, that's very true. The one that uh, what Tiger Woods made at the end of his day on Thursday. Oh, that is also oh. true. Well, <laughs> I think you could point to one very important triple bogey that Rory McIlroy also made. That if he had just turned that into a par, you know, things would be a little different. Yeah, but like not a lot of birdie holes out there. Uh, so it, it kind of felt like when guys were turning to the back nine, it was kind of like, okay, if we're two under, let's like hold on tight to the steering wheel. Let's get this thing in the house. Maybe we make one or two more birdies and just avoid making so many fives out there. Lots of fives on the scorecard. Uh, before we go, we got to talk Tiger. Yeah, let's talk about Tiger. I think I it was a like, really interesting week for him. <laughs> I feel like people are surprised. I don't understand why people are surprised, but they're surprised. I think that we forecast some version of this. You very accurately, me more begrudgingly. 
um, that this is kind of where Tiger Woods is right now, uh, that he was, you know, he had it in him to play well enough to make the cut. And I think that that deserves our praise. Uh, Justin Thomas, one of the last things he said in his press conference was like, look, you guys still don't get it. You don't understand how ridiculous it is that Tiger Woods made the cut at both these majors this week or this year so far. Um, so I think that's all good. But then also once the weather was going to get a little chillier and a little sketchier, uh, playing early on Saturday was not going to be a good recipe for Tiger. I, I mean, I think that there's a couple different options now, right? I wrote about this after his 79 on Saturday. First option is this is just part of the progression. He is actually going to get meaningfully better and healthier. And we're still just oh, kind of seeing early stages of that. Like this doesn't feel like progression though. Can you explain why this could still be part of progression? Well, I think because, you know, because when he came back to the masters, like that actually wasn't that long ago. And we're still seeing like, Maybe his body was in slightly better shape this week, but not, but it still hasn't been uh, enough further in the rehab process to make a meaningful difference. Do you but feel that, like he was in better shape this week? Uh, I felt like he was in better shape during practice rounds. I felt like he looked a little bit better heading into the tournament, but then it felt like there were setbacks when the actual competition started. Like it looked like, certain shots put him in a lot of pain and it was hard to tell if it was just the leg or if it was the leg then hurting the back or exactly what was happening um tiger basically just alluded to the fact that he was sore and that things hurt so no it definitely didn't feel like progress i'm just saying like that's that's like the optimist's door um so if there are three doors that's door number one door number two is the complete opposite, which is to say, like, look, he should he's going to play St. Andrews. He's determined to do that. He should skip Brookline if he can. Um, he should play St. Andrews and then just basically say, I'm not playing any more competitive golf until something meaningfully changes, like until I just lay low for a while, get my body right. Like maybe I'm maybe I never really play competitive golf again. Or maybe something changes and in a year plus I actually get back out here. So that's like the that's the pessimist store. That's like Tiger, you've done what what you were meant to do. You came back, you proved it to us, etc. Time to chill. But yeah. I don't I don't so think either of those are fully realistic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. My thoughts on that are uh, I'm probably gonna come across as the pessimist, but like I just can't help but see that in his seven competitive rounds he's got two 78s and 179 and it, it it feels like when he drops off it's a drop off it's a significant drop off and yeah. that's not that we shouldn't have sympathy for him he is extremely still 15 months removed from from that life altering accident but like you know Maybe, he, maybe he needs to not just play majors. Um, and so maybe he, like maybe that's all he's ready to play right now. But maybe he needs to do something a little bit differently, because for him to just for him to take the step off when the body starts to fail him, and it's like you kind of just like 
go off the deep end. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it makes it really hard to be uh, confident about. Like, it just feels like even if he plays St. Andrews, it's going to be a week after playing that Irish program. It's going to be a week uh, or more of him living, uh, you know, in in UK and Ireland. And it just feels like as much as we want that to happen, like it's just maybe this is just a, the harder reset that we needed coming off the Masters. Everyone yeah. gets so caught up in Augusta National, so excited that he made the cut, really willing to look past those 78s. And gosh, when he grinds to make the cut like he did this week, yeah, you got to be optimistic about the guy. But yeah. <laughs> again, like almost half of his rounds back thus far have been 78 or worse. And that's that becomes a little bit more glaring for me. Yeah. And I, I think that there are some specific circumstances that we can recognize that like, yes, Saturday morning in both Augusta and in Tulsa were kind of unseasonably and surprisingly cold which we know is bad for him. But, you know, golf's also an outdoor sport. There's lots of chilly mornings <laughs> you think, involved. You think it's going to guarantee to be warm mornings. at St. Andrews? Yeah, well, no, but I think I like I think I think that this was a a particular set of circumstances. It's still a pretty small sample size, etc. But Sean, I could not help but think on Saturday morning after feeling like pretty inspired and invigorated by what he did on Friday, just he, just to watch him Saturday morning, it was like, this is this is what he's worked so hard to to do. Like this is the prize that he earned for grinding through Friday is coming out and and trying his hardest to break eighty in miserable <laughs> conditions. Um, I mean, it was a tough day. Like John Rom shot seventy six, and we're not having existential crises about him. But, you know, it, it wasn't good. John Rahm also didn't WD after the round. So I think do you that feel like Do you feel like Tiger thinks he needs to do something at this point? I think he's still evaluating success in the same way that he has for the last 25 years, which is really interesting because most people don't really should, do that. You should tell him to stop that. Yeah, and I granted, yes, he has more perspective. He has shifted his own expectations in certain ways, but he is still, you know, he's not he's not defining success as like whatever his next business venture is. He still is putting all of his efforts into coming back and being a competitive PGA Tour golfer. And um whether or not that's realistic, I guess, is still to be seen. But that's still where all of his efforts lie. Yeah. I think I'm okay with that. Maybe maybe it's what he needs, though, is what I'm getting to. I mean, it's cool. Like, he's not just starting a media company and a clothing company. And, and he's not, like, he's not diving into all these other pursuits. I know he's spending more time on his foundation. But he still is basically just channeling all his energy into trying to win golf tournaments. So I don't think he's going away anytime soon. Um, it's just that he somehow has to progress if he's going to actually play four rounds of competitive stroke play golf. Last thing on that, Sean, though, I know that Tiger has rejected the idea of playing in a golf cart, but I was sort of wondering because he seems he seems to get fatigued as the week goes on like 
you know, I, I know competitive golf takes more out of him, but I'm curious if he would entertain the idea of playing practice rounds in a golf cart. Mm. Probably not. <laughs> I think he, I think he, think he cares about the visual. Yeah. Maybe you should, uh, maybe you should th- toss that idea into his camp. Toss that idea around team tiger, see what comes back. But yeah, no, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. All right. Any final, uh, things that you saw on site that people at home need to know about? Because, uh, I jetted out of town and I was not in Tulsa for the weekend and I, uh, nearly locked my golf clubs in my car as I was leaving Oklahoma, just like, uh, Brooks Kepka did, but that was kind of my final memory from, from the plains. Um, let's see what, what else did I see? I think that there was just something pretty cool about JT finding the magic he needed to, to come back on Sunday and, uh, take a fresh mentality. The fact that he found that in a peaceful Saturday night range session with bones, I think that that's the image that I will take from this week. Cause I think that that's pretty cool. There is something special about sun going down on a golf course. You kind of don't want to leave, <laughs> you know, like why can't yeah. I just stay here for well, this is when all the people had left, you know, the fans had gone home for the day. The other competitors were, were gone. He was basically the last, one of the last people on property, except for the hardworking folks in the media center. Um, yeah, well earned. Tip of the cap to Justin Thomas. All right, congrats, JT. Congrats, Dylan, on maybe making it a third of the way from Oklahoma City to Dallas. Are you? Are you yeah, still? That might be optimistic, but we're making progress. <laughs> All right, but well, you get get down to Texas, get down there safely. And, uh, you know, by the time you wake up, there'll be a fresh new drop zone in people's subscription folders. Folks, five stars, subscribe, tell more people at weddings that there's a great golf podcast that they have to listen to. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. 